Welcome to the HR Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR, talent, and leadership communities to you. For more episodes and the latest articles covering what's new in the world of work, visit hrgazette.com, subscribe and follow us on social media. Welcome to another episode of the HR Chat Show. I'm your host today, Bill Badham. And in this episode, we're going to focus on well-being in the workplace and ways to recognize and tackle stress. My amazing, illustrious guest today is Professor Sir Carrie Cooper, CBE, the 50th anniversary prof of organizational psychology and health at Manchester Business School at the University of Manchester. Carrie is the author and editor of more than 125 books and is one of Britain's most quoted business experts. I'm very, very lucky to have him on the show, listeners. Uh, He was born in the US, so he's got a US accent, so don't be surprised when when he starts talking in just a second. But he lives in in Blighty, he lives in England and has dual nationality. Um, I'm also a dual citizen, so respect to him. Uh, He is the founding president of the British Academy of Management, a companion of the Chartered Management Institute, and one of only a few UK fellows of the American Academy of Management. Hey, Carrie, welcome to the show today. Ah, Great to be with you, Bill. And listeners, I did check with uh, with Carrie, Sir Carrie, Professor Sir Carrie, uh, how how I could address him. So I'm 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 being polite and whatnot. And, and because he's a cool American as well as being a Brit, he's like, you just call me Carrie. So we're going to go with Carrie from this moment onwards, Carrie. Um, Carrie, beyond my reintroduction there, why don't you start by taking a minute or two and introducing yourself to our listeners? Oh, okay, yeah, I've been in the UK now for fifty years. I came as a student many many years ago. I'm that old. And uh, I have, uh, you know, I'm a, a psychologist, an organizational psychologist. I head the uh, National Forum for Health and Wellbeing at work, which is made up of 45 global employers from Microsoft to BT, Shell, and goes on and on, Rolls Royce. And we look at HR directors and chief medical officers, and we look at issues to do with well-being in the workplace. Big issue now. Huge issue. Uh, and and the, the light that it needed was finally, I think, uh, shone on well-being in the workplace because of the pandemic. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that uh, later on. Um, but at a high level, just for now, how can HR leaders help build a culture of employee well-being within their organizations? Well, to, to tell you the truth, Bill, the problem we have in this space of well-being or in the U.S. and North America, they call it wellness is they do the low-hanging fruit. A lot of people do, you know, mindfulness at lunch, sushi at your desk, bean bags, ping pong tables. That's not well-being at work. What well-being at work is a strategic issue. And HR directors have to make it a strategic issue. A non-executive director on the board should have responsibility for it. Every organization, many in the UK, by the way, already have directors of health and well-being who report to the HR director or the chief medical officer or in some cases, a CEO. It's got to be strategic. We have to look at a whole range of factors that make this up. And they are not factors, you know, like massages at your desk. It is not that. As nice as smoothies are on the well-being day, that's not what well-being is. It's looking at, looking at it strategically and creating the right kind of climate where people feel trusted, values, can work flexibly if they want to, and so on. We'll be right back to this conversation after this brief sponsor message.
Eden Workplace is the complete suite of workplace software for the modern hybrid company. Through a modular offering of workplace solutions, team members can easily book desks, manage visitors, schedule conference rooms, and process internal support tickets, while also putting employee and office health and safety at the forefront of office re-entry planning. To learn more, visit EdenWorkplace.com. Okay, thank you. And we're going to get into some of the details uh, in this interview today. Um, but first, your, your latest book of the 125 plus books that you have published. Oh my goodness me, that might be the most, by the way, of any guests that I've ever had, possibly. Um, but your latest book is called Occupational Health and Wellbeing, Challenges and Opportunities in Theory and Practice. And the book covers a wealth of topical and relevant themes that include defining well-being in a modern world, toxic leadership, mental health, first aid, the application of positive psychology, and what's the new normal uh, and what that might look like. Tell me a bit about the book, Carrie, and some of the hoped-for learning outcomes. Okay, basically what we're doing in this book, it's an edited volume with two colleagues here in the UK. What we're doing is we're looking at the different components that make up a well-being culture. So a lot of organizations have mental health first aid. Well, we want to find out what's the evidence. Does it work? How does it work? Do we select the right people to do it? What about um, mindfulness? Uh, what house, you know, what, what's the evidence on mindfulness? I mean, a lot of companies, this is low-hanging fruit stuff. A lot of them have it, but does it work? And if it does work, who does it work for? How does it work? Then we look at what I think are more important issues, the line manager. See, my national forum of health and well-being, made up of an HR directors and chief medical officers, when we first met five years ago, and now we meet every six weeks in London, big global employers, I said, what is the most important issue for you? And every one of them said, the line manager from shop floor to top floor. If we have an emotionally intelligent line manager, if we have a socially skilled line manager, then you're going to create a well-being culture within that bit of the business. But if you don't, and we normally promote people based on their technical skills, not their people skills. So we recruit them based on their technical skills, not their people skills, and we promote them the same way. So we don't necessarily have in the United States, in Canada, in Britain, and many developed countries, we don't really have emotionally literate line managers. We have technically great ones. But we have a problem. And unless we recruit and get parity between their people and their technical skills, we're not going to go very far. So that's one of the other components that we look at in the book. As I mentioned in the introduction there, we are, we are going to be talking today about stress in the workplace uh, and how it can manifest itself and and uh, what, what the impact can be on uh, the employee, on their colleagues and on the general uh, world of work. Um, and stress has been a fundamental element of, of your research for many years now. What, what are some of the biggest causes of stress and anxiety and how can stress manifest itself in the workplace? OK, well, stress became a really big issue in the financial crisis of 2007-8. That's where it really started. And if we look at the evidence, and there's tons of research, we don't need, you know, a typical academic says, oh, we need more research in. Well, this is one area we don't need. There are tens of thousands of studies published across the globe on stress at work, particularly from the finance sector, uh, particularly when we had the financial crisis in 2007, 8, and, and so on. The factors that cause people to get stressed are how you're managed. Do you have a bullying boss, a command and control type boss, or do you have a participative? 
engaging boss? What kind of a boss do you have? So that's one factor. And the evidence is quite clear cut. If you have a bullying line manager, no matter what level you're at, it's going to make you ill. It's going to cause you problems. Then it's your workload. Are you have too much or too little? So underload as well as overload can cause you trouble. Then another thing is how much control and autonomy do you have? This is where the science comes in. There's so much science on this. The more people have autonomy and control over their work, the more they want to work flexibly, they're allowed to work flexibly. The more they're given scope to determine how they're going to run the the work that they do to achieve the objective set for them, the better it's going to be. Then it's hours of work. If you consistently work long hours, you will get ill. I did a meta-analysis for the UK government of all the studies in the world for the health and safety executive of the UK government. And we looked at it and we found if you consistently work long hours, incidentally, that's 40, just 40 plus, because remember, you have commute time into big cities and all the rest of it. So you're actually working days probably more like 50 or 60. Uh, So hours of work is important as well. So those are the kind of issues, job security, how people are, how the security of people's employment is looked at is another factor. There's a range of factors. We know what they are. We know how we can deal with them. Uh, and But it's up to the organization to street, treat this uh, really very strategically, do stress audits or well-being audits, find out what employees are suffering from, break it down by different parts of the business, and then intervene and, and change the problems. We will return to this conversation after this quick message from our sponsoring partner. The days of matching web keyword searches with resumes and job descriptions is over. It's all about cultural fit. Workzinger empowers job seekers looking for jobs and employers looking for new hires to have thoughtful and insightful conversations, making the recruiting process more successful for both sides. Learn more at workzinger.com. You mentioned just a moment ago remote working and, and uh, you could also talk about hybrid workplaces as part of that conversation. Um, do you feel that the stresses put on employees perhaps is less today for those employees that do get to work remotely full time or most of the time because they don't have to deal with those tyrants, you know, those bad bosses? Or is that entirely the wrong question, Carrie? because it should be about making sure that a boss isn't a tyrant in the first place? Yeah, I, I don't think it's about avoiding your boss, because if you have a tyrant boss, if you have a bullying boss, you should leave the, the organization or leave that bit of the organization, go to another part or get another job. It's not about that. It's for a long time, people have wanted to work flexibly. This is what did the pandemic do? It accelerated the trend to flexible working, which is wonderful because the evidence pre, by the way, I just wrote a book published four months ago called Remote, Remote Workplace Culture. Which, was, which is all about this and where we're going forward, because that's what people have wanted for a decade. Given the technology, they've wanted to work partly from home and partly from a central office, but they don't want to work 100% remotely. Listen, we, that's what we suffered from during the pandemic. We were locked away in many countries for months on, month, on end, and that's not what they wanted because they need social connectedness. But do they want to commute in every day into Manchester, to London, to New York, to Toronto? No, they don't want to do that. They don't want to spend in in London. It's one and a half hours each way. That's three hours every day. That's 15 hours a week. Did they want to? No, they want to work. They want to be trusted and valued. That's a part of a well-being strategy. 
So it's here to stay. Flexible working here. And the dinosaurs, like there's one or two investment banks I can talk about, say you have to be in the office 100% of the time. They are dinosaurs. They will lose my students. My MBA students don't want that. And organizations that demand people to be there with no evidence that's an effective strategy are going to lose talent. Okay, so in normal times, uh, I'd say, yeah, that's a given. But I'm going to just push that back on you a second and say, or ask, are they going to lose the, your, your students, your, your best students, that, that, that top talent? Because we are entering pretty tough times, Gary. Um, and the amount of jobs available to people will not be as big as we've seen, say, for the last 12 to 18 months, certainly. I mean, in, in the UK context, we're looking at four, maybe five quarters of, of recession. It's not going to be good times in 2023 for a lot of people. So I guess, can, can candidates, can, can they be as choosy as, as they were before? Okay, well, it, it, it's very interesting this because here, here's the here's the problem I see. The problem I see is the the Z generation and the young millennials want flexible working. By the way, they can choose. They are not the people who are going to be that worried about their job. You know why? They don't have mortgages because they can't afford to buy houses in the first place, right? They are the ones who everybody's calling the snowflakes. And why are they called the snowflakes? Because if they go to an employer that doesn't have a well-being culture or an employer that doesn't allow them to work flexibly, that works some long hours and burns them out and treats them as disposable assets, they bugger off. They leave. Why do they leave? Because they are well-trained. They are needed in many countries. In the UK, we're very short of skills, right? I, what I do suspect, though, in the short run, as we enter the recession, that people will turn up, the, even if they're working flexibly, will turn up the office slightly more than they want to, to show FaceTime. I agree with you there. And that we will see a bit of, but they won't come in five days a week. They still won't come in five days a week. And the millennials and the Z generation say to me, the young one, the young millennials, they say, that's it. They, they look at adverts and if they don't see in the adverts that they can work flexibly, by the way, flexibly is not remotely, it's flexibly. That means I might want to come in four days one week, maybe two another week. I come in when I need to come in. Trust me, I will do the job. And so I think we have a different generation with a different mindset. The middle-aged people, of course, they are really worried about their jobs. You're 50 years of age. You're worried about your job. In this recession, even if they have flexible working, the problem is you're going to come in four or five days a week. Because you want to show FaceTime. So we're just talking big generational differences here. You want to keep the kids? You want to get the talent? There's only one way to do that. And, and, and some of them, and by the way, working flexibly, some of them might want to work five days a week. Because they're in New York. They're in London. They're in Paris. They're in Toronto. And they don't have very good working space at home. And they want to come in. Or that's where they meet their partners. So it's an interesting area that we're going into now, but it is different generationally. Yeah, and I, I think that being in the office, at least sometimes, is it's really quite helpful for, for the Gen Zers and for the younger millennials. I'm a millennial just, by the way, I, I call myself more of a xenial because uh, I'm, I'm, I was born in the early 80s. Uh, I'm just a millennial. Um, but but I, I think certainly for the, the Gen Zers, they need to be in the office. They need to be learning from, from by osmosis. They, they, they need to be hanging around the water cooler and, and having those yeah. conversations, building up, building up those relationships that will help them later on in their career. Would you agree with that? 
Oh, totally agree with that. And they are the ones more likely to have more days in. But it doesn't mean five days a week, number one. It doesn't mean that they have to come in for 60-hour weeks, right, to learn. That's not very effective. The evidence I did when I looked at um, hours of work is if you consistently work long hours and long is about over 45 a week, you will get ill. That's the evidence. I did a systematic and, and uh, uh, analysis of all, all the studies globally. And th th that's been going on for a long time. The evidence, I wrote a book called The Long Working Hours Culture. We looked at all the evidence in there in all different kind of cultures. It is not good for you. But working smart is, you know, and having control over that working time is really important. Look how much downtime we spend when pre-COVID we spent. A lot of downtime, just fooling around to show FaceTime, to be in, stay longer hours. What damage did that do to our outside relationships and ultimately to our ability to cope well when we get back in the workplace? Surely people don't get ill if they're doing 45 plus hours a week, but it's something that they love and they enjoy. No, the evidence is whether they choose to do it or not. If they consistently, not in any one week, you can work a 60 hour week. And then, you know, because that week is important that you do whatever you're doing. Sure. The evidence is, if you look at all the evidence, if you consistently work long hours, it will damage your health. But remember long hours, it, that doesn't even include the commute time yeah. into big cities, into LA, into New York, LA in particular, it could take you two hours to get anywhere on the freeways, my old hometown. Anyway, you know, you have the commute time. But, and the other th additional thing you have is what? When you come home, do you just sit and watch telly or go out to a film or go out for dinner with your partner? How many of us do our emails at night? Vast numbers. We do our emails before we go to sleep. So we're still working. The smartphone has actually extended the working day dramatically. And that is a, an add-on. And by the way, there's a lot of research called techno stress which lack of emails. This National Forum for Health and Wellbeing, the HR directors and chief medical officers said to me when we first started this five years ago, and we meet regularly every six weeks, as I said earlier, they said the second most damaging thing other than your boss is technology because it's act accessing you 724 all the time or you're accessing it and you shouldn't. We have to mm -hmm. find a way. And of course, in some countries, Portugal, uh, a whole range of countries, uh, um, France, etc., have the right to disconnect laws now. That means, and take in France, the French have the right to disconnect laws, which means legally no manager can send an email out of office hours to their subordinates. That means at night, the weekend, or while they're on holiday. That's a French law. Portugal's passed it. New Zealand's passed it. The EU is thinking about it. Should we have a right to disconnect law in all 27 countries? And so technology is interfering with your private lives, but we don't want to get rid of it. I mean, we, we, you know, technology is helpful, but if you stay on all, if you're always on, that damages your health and well-being. So we need to find ways of managing this. For example, line managers should not really send emails unless absolutely essential on a Friday night, on a Saturday, a Sunday, while somebody's on holiday. They shouldn't do that. Send it if it's absolutely essential, the business, you know, something really important has come up and you need to deal with it and it's a Saturday, fine. But consistently doing it, and many line managers do. So when I was, when I started my career, uh, when I was in my early 20s, I 
I kind of took that approach of um, uh, you can sleep when you die. Uh, just get on with it and, and, and push yourself and try to get to X level as soon as you can. I, I look back on that now and I, I regret it and I think I'm grayer than I would otherwise be. Are there ever times when stress can be a, a, a good motivator and, and be a good thing? Oh, absolutely. But let's use two separate words. Let's use the word pressure. Pressure is stimulating and motivating. But when pressure exceeds your ability to cope, then you're in the stress zone. And there you, moving over into that zone, you get behavioral changes when you're normally very affable, sociable, friendly, you become more withdrawn or more aggressive. That's a mission that you cross the line between just great stimulating, motivating pressure, and now you're in the stress zone. And that's not good for you because that can lead to stress-related ill health like heart disease, um, a whole range of your immune system can be suppressed. You can get all sorts of frequent colds and flus and other more important. And there's a lot of research now on the link between stress and cancer. So uh, because it inhibits your immune system. So the important thing is not to overdo it. Stay in the good old pressure zone. That's fine. That's stimulating. Companies like it and everything else. But when your behavior begins to change and you start to have symptoms like you can't sleep at night, you're worrying all the time. You get headaches all the time. You're getting physical symptoms over a period of months. And people are wrecking. When a colleague says to you, Bill, you haven't been yourself for the last couple months. You know you have just crossed the dividing line between pressure and stress. Carrie, there are so many other questions that I wanted to ask you. And I've got a long list of them here, but we've run out of time. Before we do wrap up, how can our listeners connect with and learn more about you? Oh, well. I mean, anybody's interested, they can get in touch with me, can email me. I don't mind. I'm very, I'm, I'm very open. Just, I won't answer your emails at night. That's all. <laughs> so you can get me at Carrie, C-A-R-Y dot Cooper at Manchester dot A-C dot U-K. That's my university and that's where I am. Anytime you want something, any information, just get in touch. Well, Kerry, I'm going to be getting in touch because I want to go back through some of these other questions that we didn't get to speak about today and, and, and you didn't get to address today. So I'm definitely going to be in touch for, for a follow-up interview very soon. But for now, it just leaves me to say thank you very much for being my guest on this episode of the HR Chat Show. Well, thank you, Bill. I really enjoyed it. Let's talk again. And listeners, as always, until next time, happy working. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Chat Podcast. There are hundreds of conversations with business experts available for free on the HR Gazette website, Apple, Spotify, and all the main platforms. And remember to like, subscribe, and follow us on social media.